Well, little did you know, a week later you'd be back here. But I am sure no one's really complaining about that. You know, you wonder, uh, some of us have been marveling at God's providence these two years, and um, we love the building of Westmount. That's no doubt. But sometimes it's good to be in God's creation and worship him and sing, isn't it? So good, and what a day. What a day to do that. We would be remiss if we didn't give a hearty thank you to Jim and Marilyn for this. Let's do that right now, Marilyn, Jim. Two weeks in a row, they continue to serve our socks off this way, so we are grateful for them. Beloved, take your Bibles and open up to Exodus 22. We continue in this study, in this marvelous setting today, Exodus 22. Of course, over the past couple of weeks, we have been studying this portion of God's law. This section, and when you open up to Exodus 22, again, I I pray you're very familiar with it now, beginning in 22.16 and going all the way down to 23.9. And uh, we will get there to verse 9 today, God willing. So we're, we've been looking at this whole section and we have recognized that we needed to take time with this because so many, they come to the principles that are here in this text under the law of God and justice, they really go astray, they go askew. This is, as we've noted a number of times, and what are we referring to? We're referring to social justice And social justice in this study as defined by Yahweh. We're all about his definition, not ours. And with Yahweh, there's no vague definition. There's no soft or there's no new definition here. This is ancient truth and ancient principle for all time. And that is still the undergirded framework of God's law today that continues to be. God has always been and remains a God of justice. His law legislates, just by way of brief review, first, justice for the maiden. Look at verses 16 and 17. Remember, the young lady ready for marriage, but taken advantage of before marriage. Remember, God is concerned with long-term protection for the maiden far after the violation, by way of a new family or a familiar one. And we've seen that the cries are heard. That is justice for the maiden. Next, we saw justice for the wicked. Look at verses 18 to 20. Sorcery, bestiality, idolatry, the vilest of sin in all its dark and hidden forms. In sorcery, fortune-telling, and charms, we would have an attempt to play God. That's what you have. Call it what you will. That's what it is when you dabble with those things. In bestiality, it is the gross rebellion against God's creation and design. And in idolatry, it's the act of erecting and worshiping other gods. These are vile things. And such evil practice under God's law brings death. That is justice for the wicked. Then we saw justice for the disadvantaged. Scan verses 21 to 24. Again, the clear and evident disadvantage. That's what we're talking about. Remember the sojourner, the widow, the orphan as such. There's no subjective, no felt reality here. God's law identifies, protects the observed disadvantage. 
Yahweh hears the cries of those so disadvantaged, and he moves to uphold justice. And we note with that, God rights wrongs. He doesn't make new ones. We've commented on that so often in this study. He doesn't make new ones. God's justice is concerned with wrong not happening again. That's God's concern. And then last week, we considered justice for the poor. Look at verses 25 to 27. That is, first and foremost, as stated, look at verse 25, the poor were among God's people. And we looked at that, the priority of God's concern for who? The poor brother. From the law, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, to Jesus in Matthew 25, right to the household of faith in Galatians 6. Of course, that is not at the exclusion of all poor. We are to consider them, and we looked at that at length last time. But as we see clearly in God's word, we have a priority to care for our home. When dad feeds and tucks his children in, when dad does that, feeds, tucks, cares for his children, then he can and then he should look out at the neighborhood. We commented on why this is so important because the narratives that you're being fed today are completely backwards. Once you take care of the neighborhood, whatever's left, then you take care of your house. How much household care is suffering at the expense of neighborhood focus? Not with your God. You see it clearly in the law. His law stipulates that we care for those in need in God's house. In God's house, we meet needs. We give without interest. We care for God's people. And for all the poor, again, remember, we consider them too. We consider them. We're not blind to them. But we give them and we would meet needs that is true, physical needs. But ultimately, what's our focus with those outside the household of God, those not reconciled to God? It's the need. It's one need, the gospel, the need of needs, far above many hot meals and many cloaks. This is base stuff, the need of need beyond this life. With the poor, our God is, look at verse 27, compassionate. And he demands justice in his compassion. And that is where we left off last week. This morning we pick it up. Look at verse 28. We're just going to continue on and read this section. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor... Shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit? If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked, and you shall take no bribe. 
for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the sight in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Let us pray. Father, we consider that text as we have been this entire passage, and we simply ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see what we need to see, that you would give us an understanding mind to receive it, that you would, in understanding, let us not only receive it, but apply it, apply it, Lord, and live it as we would go forth later today to your glory. God, we beg and ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We keep going here in this account, continuing on now with this broad and final domain. And it's a sweeping lot. Just take a look at what we have from verse 28 right down into chapter 23, verse 9. It's sweeping. And we continue with this, justice in relationships. Justice in relationships. Of course, as we consider relationships, we consider our ultimate relationship. And this is where the health of every relationship you have flows from the ultimate relationship. And I just need to pause for a moment and and say, I know we've said this before, if we struggle with the health of our horizontal relationships, one of the first things we need to look at is the vertical relationship. How is our relationship of relationships? And look at this at the beginning of verse 28. You shall not revile God. That command is the overarching law principle for the next four verses that you see right to the end of chapter 22. The word, look at it, rendered there, revile, is a word with a very similar sense in the original as curse. There's a lot of overlap here. In fact, you could say they're synonymous, two synonyms in this verse, and you're going to get a different word for rulers, but same sense, but they mean roughly the same thing. In fact, think back to chapter 21, verse 17. The same word was used there, remember, of disparaging talk toward your parents. Same word. Same word. And the sense here is this, to make declarations that are out of line with the authority that you're addressing. That's the sense here. To make declarations, right, with your mouth that are way out of line with the authority you're addressing. So where it was seen as cursing with parents, as comfortable as society may be with cursing parents today, God is not. God is not. Here with God, it is reviling or even blaspheming. Some of your translations render it such, blaspheming. Now, how God's people can revile him, because you may be saying, well, I don't do that, or I don't know of anyone who would overtly do that. How that is, is outlined by the series that follow. Let's look at it closely. Number one, we do not revile God by cursing a ruler of God's people. You see that at the end of verse 28. This is the first way it's unpacked. Whether in Israel... And as we see with the judges and the kings, or today, Romans 13, which says that all governing authorities are instituted by God. God has, listen, appointed rulers for our good, not for our harm. So much has been said about that today, and that's all I need to say. They've been appointed for our good, Romans 13, verse 4. Now that reality, that appointment by God does not mean that they are like God right? Doesn't mean that they're like God. They've been appointed by God, but they're not like God. Rulers still sin. Rulers, it's true, still legislate evil. Think of Jeroboam in the Old Testament. Think of Roe versus Wade. Rulers still sin and legislate evil. 
And often we do disagree with them, and often we need to obey God first. However, in both of those, and here is the sense, they need not, when you disagree and recognize you need to obey God first, in those, rulers need not be cursed as you do that. You see that? They need not be cursed. They need not be reviled. And the temptation, when they're acting ungodly, is for us to revile them. Is that not true? To curse them. When they're acting ungodly, that's the temptation we have. Think about 1 Peter. You can just mark this. 1 Peter was a book written to, really think about this, uh, elect exiles, if you will, suffering under one of the most wicked rulers, infamous. You know him as Nero. And it's, I don't need to recount what he did to Christians. The persecution was so fierce. But of course, most famously, in chapter 2, verse 17 of that book written at that time, when brothers and sisters were literally being burned, right, by Nero, Peter says, the apostle says to the dispersion, honor the emperor. Doesn't that just stop you for a moment? As you're being persecuted, honor the emperor. And then we say, in our disobedience, we must be honoring the emperor. But we like to say, first and foremost, it's obedience to God. And that means we honor him first. This is, by the way, if you look at this same verse, very verse Paul quotes in Acts 23.5. You know that account when he's now under custody and one of Ananias, who's a high priest, his guard strikes Paul. Do you remember that? And they say, what are you doing? Uh, uh, Cursing. And, And Paul has comments about that act, has strong words for the striker. And he says, what are you doing cursing the high priest? And Paul says, I paraphrase, I didn't know, I'm sorry. I had no idea that he was of the high priest. And he quotes this very verse. The apostle Paul understood this. So we do not revile God by not reviling the authorities he places over us. Again, reviling is not the same as disagreeing or obeying God first. We honor them and we don't revile them too. We do not revile God by withholding from him. Look at verse 29. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. In the law, Israel was called to give the first and best of all things. That's lawful. Under God, back in Exodus 13, God said to Israel, do you remember this? Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine, Yahweh says. That is, note that, note that, the first of both child and animal. Of course, that didn't mean firstborn sons were sacrificed like animals. Later in the law, you can note Numbers 3, Israel gives specific, or is, receives specific instructions on the redemption price for the firstborn. Right? There's a price. So in one sense, you would have the firstborn animals and then a price paid for firstborn sons. Because all of it was to be given to Yahweh. That along, by the way, with the instructions given in Leviticus 22 and Deuteronomy 15 for acceptable offerings. See that in verse 30. So the firstborn in one own home, one's own home of one's livestock, the first fruit of the field, note that in those verses too, all of it was designated to the Lord. Don't miss that, Westmount. All of it designated to the Lord. As God's people, as God's people, the first is always his. 
every time. Principle hasn't changed. And we need to note that because like all of God's law, there's a transcendent, eternal, ongoing principle here. And it's still very much true for us in this administration. If God is our ultimate relationship, and I would say Christian, he is, right? If he's our ultimate relationship, then we are to relate to him as such. We cannot claim him as our ultimate relationship and then respond to him as a lesser relationship. Does that make sense? We can't do that. And the law legislates that. We don't do that. We give him what he is due. If God is our first relationship, then we give to him accordingly. I believe that's self-evident. That means, as we see in this text, we must heed two key principles. And we just want to grab the application as we go. Look at 29 and 30 again. Look at it with me. Look at the beginning of verse 29. It says this simply, we do not what? Delay in giving God what he is due. We are creatures of delay often, are we not? Putting off what we rightfully need to do. This text says you don't delay in giving God what he is due. Don't delay. Secondly, look at the end of verse 29. We do not simply offer God what is left over. God is not a God that accepts leftovers. In fact, more than that, I'd say God is not a God worthy of anything like leftovers, right? The first and the best are given to God, the very first fruits. So we do not revile God by withholding from him. We justly give, rightly give what he is due. He is God Almighty. The ultimate relationship we give without delay and we give our very best. Thirdly, we do not revile God by partaking in what is unclean. Look at verse 31. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Here we arrive at a key law principle that we see woven throughout it. You've seen this principle before. Let's just bring it out. Let's put the watercolors on it and just bring it out. This law reveals consecration. Consecration. That is that God's people are to be set apart from those around. So it's so helpful that we talk about context and historical context, the law reveals this repeatedly, how God's people are called to be different from those around. God's people are not only called to be set apart, but to be fully devoted onto God. That's what they're called to be and do. It is the pagan nations around you, Yahweh says. It's the pagan nations that would eat any flesh indiscriminately. That's what pagans do. They have no discrimination. They will eat that in this context for Israel. It's the pagan nations around you that have no trouble, Israel, eating torn flesh that's only fit for the dogs. That's what the pagans do. Israel, not you. You're not like them. You are to be consecrated, set apart completely from them. Israel, you're to walk for me according to my ways, not their ungodly ways. And Wesma, do you see the application here? I pray in these times... You are set apart from the culture around us. I pray that people look at you and say, I don't know what it is, but they are not just different. Mark this, so different. What is it about her? What is it about him? How come they're not walking in Canaanite ways? What is with them? I hope it is true of you. In fact, this principle is so important, and we can't press it too much ever when we come across it in Scripture. We're going to see it again in chapter 23, verse 19. 
over and over again, you are not like them. You are not like them. You are of me. You are of me. And church, we've seen it here and we'll continue to see this principle even long after these two chapters. As such, we don't gloss over it. This is what it means to be God's own people. It means we do not revile God by partaking in what is unclean. That's the principle. As we saw a couple of weeks ago in verses 18 through 20, and as we see repeated in the New Testament, you can mark this 2 Corinthians 6, we have no association, no partnership. We have, as God's people, no fit whatsoever with things that are not of God. Again, 2 Corinthians 6. As such, there's no dabbling, there's no trying, there's no tolerating, there's no partaking or no union with evil at all, says the Lord. We owe God our reverence, our first fruits, and our consecration. That's what the law is telling us here. And that is how we justly approach the relationship of relationships for us. The law moves from the vertical to the horizontal. We turn now to chapter 23. Look at verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You recognize even that in principle. This is indeed ninth commandment stuff, ninth word stuff. Very basic stuff for God's people. God's people do not lie in any way. Not to associate whiter any way that you bear false witness. That is not of God's people. No lying, says the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness, hence this. You shall not spread a false report. God following 101, it may be, but oh, how we need this law reminder. Is that not true? In a world wrought with lies. We are not creatures of lie. We are God's people of truth. Here Yahweh unfurls another dimension of just and right living as his people. Another overall command that is given definition, note this as we walk through this passage, another command that's given definition by what comes next. And so, firstly, we see you shall not spread a false report by joining hands with the wicked and malicious. You find that in verse 1. Look at it again. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. The case in view here is a wicked man approaching and seeking an adversary. You can almost insert any one of God's people into this. Insert yourself, right? A wicked person wanting you to be an adversary. That's the, that's the sense. Remember, the law called for at least two witnesses. So in the ancient context here, the wicked person knew, I can't do this on my own. I can't rot evil on my own. I need an adversary. I need you, so I'm going to bring you in. That's the scene here. I need two witnesses, Deuteronomy 17.6. To carry out my plan, to carry out my agenda, I need two. So God's people are approached. To bolster a false claim, a fraudulent move needs support, so help is sought. That's the case here. Here the law says to God's people, don't do this. Hardly needs to be said, but look at God's law pressing the point. Don't do this. Don't join hands with evil hands. Don't do that. And you would say, well, I don't, and and we don't, and I hope I don't. Maybe that's what you're saying. And you might think, how would God's people ever join hands with evil hands? Here again, we're reminded of the errors in the social justice movement today, and we need to take note of this, beloved. 
I remember just over a year ago hearing of a very prominent church and churches, it was the spring of 2020, marching in a particular parade, standing beside a flag, right? And you know the movement. Of course, they have fallen on very tough times now, but the movement at the time was all the rage. It was called Black Lives Matter. Many Christians aligning themselves with this movement, joining hands figuratively, if not literally, with such a movement, thoughtlessly getting behind a movement whose problems are now, one year later, so well documented it's shameful. Organizations, BLM and the like, promoting, here's just a few, immoral identity, anti-family, very clearly, right, it's been documented now, wanting to take the warhead to the nuclear family. And of course, all stripes of anti-God. They want nothing to do with your God at all. Organizations and the like calling for the tearing down of the fabric and walls of God's created order in his good society. Organizations calling good what God calls evil and evil what God calls good, Isaiah 5. How do we join hands with those that are evil in such ways? May it never be true of us. God's people do not join hands with that. That's just one. Now let's see another. Two, you shall not spread a false report by siding with the many perverting justice. If you have an NIV in front of you, it translates that word many as crowd. If you have a King James, you're going to see multitude. The majority is a really good sense here. That's what they're both getting at, both good. Falling in with the crowd, going with the majority has always been humanity's weakness. Has it been? I just want to make sure that I'm with the majority. My, oh, my, is that not true today? I feel safe if I'm just doing what everyone else is. It's like a cocoon that makes one feel safe. Falling in with the crowd, siding with the many to save face, not stand out and not, heaven forbid, cause a stir. Let it not be me causing the stir, right? This is nothing new. This is the human condition. This flows right out of the curse to just want to be, right? Want to be going in any direction, even if it's an anti-God direction. I just don't want to be making waves. Here in ancient Israel, there was specific case laws for those so inclined. Of course, there's nothing new under the sun. Beloved who does, how much more is this needed for us today? Is that not true? How much more today? In the name of social justice, how many simply fall in with the crowd? And here it is, without giving it a thought. Trendy BLM memes, anti-police slogans, flying flags, lowering them, raising them, and on it goes. And you know, it doesn't have to be these modest, culture-conforming deeds. I wonder how often our silence speaks volumes. How often? And just so we don't draw attention. Beloved, falling in with the crowd, whether subtle or silent, has many forms. I appreciate commentator Douglas Stewart. I'm just going to read him here in full. Sometimes something can be said so pointed, as I say often to you. And let me just quote him. He says this, speaking of this principle of humanity, he says this, I quote, The temptation warned against here is that of being swayed in any action that would be wrong by the fear of looking foolish incorrect, odd, or dishonest because of taking a position different 
from that taken by everyone or virtually everyone else. God has created human beings to be socially integrative and to try to cooperate with one another. As a result, it can be extremely difficult to take a stance in a difficult and emotionally charged situation or legal case against the majority, possibly, and hear this, including many of one's friends or even family, in a favor of a person or cause that has no other advocates. That's so helpful. Finally, in this trio flowing from the false report is this one, verse 3, you shall not spread a false report by being partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. We've already commented on the injustice today of adding more wrongs. This is esteeming the wronged. So to be clear here, what are we talking about? It's like making murals and statues of the criminals and the wronged and esteeming them. Here, not only see it plainly in the verse, in this context, but I want you to hear it elsewhere too. Mark this, Leviticus 19.15 says this, You shall do no injustice in court. That's elsewhere in the law. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. That's so clear. You do not show partiality to the rich And you do not show partiality to the poor. That's justice, both sides. The standard actually is righteousness. That's the standard. Not our sympathies, not our bents, not society. The standard is righteousness. This is how we judge and discern all things, his righteousness. And in the New Testament, that righteousness, if we were to put a a head on this, that righteousness is embodied in the form of who? Christ. Christ. Remember, Christian, it is Christ that brings what? Both justice and mercy. Christ. With him, through him, and in him, all wrongs will be righted. He is the standard of righteousness and the broker of it. As such, with Christ, there's no partiality. The wrongs, the many, are made right in Jesus Christ. In fact, beloved, contrary to what social justice practices, there is no justice in partiality. Can I say that again? There's no justice in partiality. It's a movement. It feels strong. It brings tears. It brings orders. It can move many things, but there's no justice in partiality. Not under your God. Partiality to the poor is just as much an injustice as partiality to the rich. In Christ, there's no partiality. Listen, period. There are no preferred groups in Jesus. This is precisely what is confirmed and echoed in the New Testament to the church. We've commented on this verse, I believe, more than once in our study, this mini-series. Listen to the law restated in James 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So we do not spread false reports by joining hands with the wicked, falling in with the crowd, or perverting justice, or by showing partiality to anyone. We don't do that. We continue with justice in our earthly relationships with Another one here, look at this, verse 4. Look at it with me. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. 
If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. This is just an amazing case law from our Lord, is it not? Look at who is in view. Your enemy. And I don't want you to miss here, beloved, in clear verses like these, how stereotypes are just blown apart. You see that? You know the ones of an Old Testament God that takes pleasure in smiting enemies. You know those stereotypes, right? That's what he does. Along those lines, if you believe the crowd, you would think in this case, if you meet your enemy's ox going astray, what? Can you not picture the massive lightning bolt just taking that ox up, right? Because that's the Old Testament God we're taught. That's what he's going to do. It's your enemy. This case, if you meet your enemy's fallen burdened donkey, God will sit in the heavens and what? Laugh. <laughs> Look at that. Your donkey's burdened. That's the God we are conditioned to think happens in the Old Testament. Yes, such are the accusations of the world to a God, listen, of a world to a God that they continue to rebel against. Don't listen to them. Listen to the word. Yet if we were to dig even further, you would realize this obvious truth. Many skeptics would accuse an Old Testament God of doing this, of being vengeful, smiting, all of those things, right? But I ask you this. I want you to just stop and consider this. Remember, we're thinking critically here at Westmount. When you think about those stereotypes, whose way is that really? The smiting, the getting back. Whose way are we talking about? Consider concepts in the world today like this. Look out for number one, or I know you've heard this one, doggy dog. Whose way is that? Certainly not Yahweh. You see your enemies, anything in your path, and you do what? The modern man, the modern woman is what? You kill it. If it's in your path, you destroy it. Look out for number one. And how about this one? You see your enemy hard done by, and what do you do? More than laugh, you say, that's karma. They had it coming to them. That's the way of the world. That's not the economy of Yahweh. Yahweh's a God of justice. False religion will tell you to have peace in what goes around comes around. And somehow you're supposed to feel better that what goes around comes around. And so it goes with pseudo-justice, the false justice today. It has no category. Listen to me. Modern Machinations of justice have no category for what you're seeing here in verses 4 and 5. Look, this is true justice from your God. I mean, true justice would dictate if you find a lost or fallen animal, regardless of whose it is, you what? Return it. Help. Show no partiality with who it is or no vengeful spirit. That's the true right thing to do. If an animal is lost, regardless of who it is, you return it. That's justice. Once again, the character of our God shines bright in his law, and we see him here. Yes, that attribute, that justice of God is in every little detail like here. And it's very telling, beloved, that God's law here, and and note this, it's so telling that God's law here is simply enforcing what should be normal. Do you see that? What a sad indictment of how far we've fallen. We need God's law to show us what's normal. We've fallen so far. Now, this tells you that we are the ones of injustice. We are the ones acting in injustice. We are the problem, not God. In fact, we could say, if I could push the point, thank God for him making all things right in so many ways. Thank God that he brings sanity to confusion and chaos, immorality and impartiality. 
In fact, take just a moment and consider the law needed in these last few verses. We will show partiality to the wicked, will we not? We will show partiality to the poor. We will show partiality against our enemies. None of that is fair or right or just at all, yet social justice, listen, claims the high ground. Social justice today will demand, listen to me, it will demand that you do just that. That's what's going on today. Social justice presents to you forcefully a new law and a new morality, and it says you must submit. You must get on board or there's trouble. That's why you see all kinds of capitulation. Movements today, listen, you know this. Movements today demand your partiality. They demand your virtue signals. Make sure you have it on your social media. You better have it to fit in. They demand your everything. Everything. That's what they want. Yes, church market, this is law replacement. Let's not miss this. This is so important. This is law replacement, the law of God for the law of man. And that's why submitting to, capitulating to, going with, falling in with the crowd, right? Everything outside the household of God is so dangerous because you're replacing the law of God for the law of man. Social justice would have you redefine all your relationships by this new law. Yes, look at what they've done to the family. Isn't it astonishing? Many of you understand, you've been around for decades and you understand what happened to the family. It's obliterated and redefined. That's what the movement would have you do. Yes, Westmount. Note the clear, though firm language of God right here in his law and his word as we round the bend here. Verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Look again at verse 6. Do not pervert justice. So clear. Verse 7. Keep far from a false charge and more. Do not kill the innocent and righteous for God says I will not acquit the wicked. The wicked, the wicked are the ones that like the bribe in verse 8. They love that stuff. The ultimate, by the way, the bribe is the ultimate in evil partiality. Favor to the wicked. Yet bribery not only blinds the clear-sighted, like dollar signs in their eyes, but note what else, end of verse 8, it subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You see what it does? That's what bribery does. It subverts the cause of justice. In other words, it erodes justice. Bribery is justice upside down. And you know what? Again, I think of all the astonishing things here, of all the things in this passage, bribery... Bribery should cause us to bristle the most, shouldn't it? The ultimate partiality. But here we sit in today's day and age, and maybe, just maybe, it hardly causes a blink. Consider bribery against the other injustice we've covered and the common approach to them. This is where we're at. Don't curse the ruler. But can you blame me? Look what they're doing. Don't delay or withhold offering to God. God knows what I'm going through. God God would understand. Just a little bit longer. Don't partake what is unclean. Really? But but a, a little never hurt anybody, and I'm just not one of those legalistic types. Don't fall in with the crowd. But but I don't want to look bad and perish the thought that I'm the only one. Don't be partial to the poor. 
but it makes me feel better. Don't mistreat my enemy? What? You would understand it's my enemy. Of course, I can and should and will do that. All that injustice in the modern social voice finds what? New and new ways to just accommodate it. New ways. And then when we come to such obvious injustice like bribery, again, we hardly bat an eye. Oh, how far from God's law we have fallen in every relationship. Yet how clear is God's law, isn't it? It's just so clear. And the principles for God's people are so refreshing in these times as we've seen. That is justice in every relationship. There's no social drawer for partiality, none. Maiden or wicked, disadvantaged or poor, ruler or enemy, we are partial to none. As God's people are far from seeing, understanding and fulfilling God's law, but mercifully, mercifully, we are not far from the God of the law. I just want us to end with this. We're not far from the one who gave us this law. We're not so far out there. This is true of Israel, remember? And we're reminded of this. Look down finally at verse 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Israel, remember, was brought near to Yahweh, delivered from Egypt, oppression and bondage, and brought where? To the mountain. And do you remember why they were brought to the mountain? To meet who? Yahweh. Both Moses and Israel brought there to meet their God. And again, as we close this portion, we must give final consideration to this. We must. It would be wrong to not be reminded of this as we close. The social injustice, the social injustice of any human being in society being granted access to a holy God. That is the ultimate injustice. I mean, what kind of God goes after those so actively in rebellion to him? Do you meditate on that? What kind of God goes after the rebel that spits in his face and turns from him and says, I'm going after him? What kind of God is an eternal plan, let alone pursuit, an eternal plan to save those that justly deserve hellfire? What kind of God is that? What kind of God sends his son, his perfect son, to take on the sin and wrath of those rebels? What kind of God is that? By the way, sin and wrath that are not earned and not deserved, who earned that? We did. We did. Westmount, what kind of God delivers his enemies? And then listen, he delivers them and then what does he do? Set them free? He draws them close to himself. Isn't that amazing? What kind of God does that? Set you free and bring you close. This God, the one giving the law in Exodus, the perfect law, the one that drew Israel close from Egypt to the mountain to show them his very nature in his law. God is shining through attributes and all in this law. And this God alone is the same one still drawing us close today. Yes, right here, right now, drawing us close to him by way of his son, the gathered body, body of Christ. In him, in Christ, we are justified, as we sang earlier. Indeed, I pray it's a blessed thought and more for you that we're justified in Christ. We are made right, perfectly just in him. In Christ, we can draw near to God. 
and be declared righteous now and forever. And you would say, how? Well, that blessed thought is what we remember now as we go to the table. 